0: The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, Fountain of Life. It is uh, an honor to share this moment with you, all of you who are tuning in to listen. Thank you for joining us this morning. Uh, It's an honor to look at God's Word together. So our text for today is going to be Revelation chapter 2 verses 18 to 29, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. Uh, This book is revealing Jesus, who he is, and what it means to know him as our savior and as our king. And we are in working through Jesus' messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Today, we'll be looking at his message to the church in Thyatira. So again, that's Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29. Let's hear the words of our Lord. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able to hear your very word, to know your thoughts towards your people, and to hear your call to us so that we could belong to you and enjoy you and receive the blessings you love to give. Lord, there are many things that are challenging in this passage and many things that are challenging in our world Lord, we pray for the wisdom to understand what you have to say and apply it rightly and faithfully. Lord, help me as I teach this passage this morning, and I pray, Lord, that uh, you would take your word and apply it to everyone who hears. Lord, if anyone doesn't know you as their Savior and their Lord, let them meet you even as they listen. For those of us who call you our king, Lord, please conform us to your image more and more so that we might have the joy of serving you faithfully for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you were with us last week, you remember last week's text led us to consider God's design for sexuality And the call for us to be faithful to him in that way by his grace. And since this week's text has uh, quite the similar theme as last week, I felt I should take the opportunity to touch on another very sensitive but also incredibly important reality of our times. And so I'll start with, I think, to get going, just what I'll call three signs of the times. Here's number one. There's a man named Peter Vlaming who was a French teacher in Virginia. One of his students decided she was transitioning on her gender and began to identify as male. So Vlaming, the teacher, tried to accommodate her to a point. He tried not to use female pronouns about her in conversation. With her, he agreed to use the name she preferred. However, he decided that he could not, by conscience used male pronouns for her as he did not believe gender to be a social construct and did not believe her to be male. He was warned by school administration. Reportedly, after accidentally using a female pronoun in reference to her, he was fired by the school. And his legal case is now in process. A sign of the times. A second sign of the times. Uh, Martina Navratilova. You've heard of her, one of the greatest tennis players in the history of the sport. Not long ago, she tweeted this. She wrote, You can't just proclaim yourself a female and be able to compete against women. She says the backlash she received for that statement was surprising to her, but her conviction only grew, and later in an article in The Times, she wrote, The rules on trans athletes reward, cheats, and punish the innocent. Letting men compete as women simply if they change their name and take hormones is unfair, no matter how those athletes may throw their weight around. And that same debate is raging in the courts of our country even now. One more sign of the times. In 2019, a bill called the Equality Act was presented before the U.S. House of Representatives. That bill would have amended the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in order to prohibit discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. The bill would basically rewrite the definition of sex and demand adherence to the new definition so gender would no longer be about biology but about orientation and preferred Identity. This is what Andrew Walker of the Religious Liberty Commission wrote about the Equality Act. He says, The bill represents the most invasive threat to religious liberty ever proposed in America. Given that it touches areas of education, public accommodation, employment, federal funding, were it to pass its sweeping effects on religious liberty, free speech, and freedom of conscience, would be both historic and also chilling. Many thinkers find the implication of this act to be sweeping. Jay Barnes is the president of Bethel University, one of the largest Christian colleges in the country. He says, I honestly don't know what we would do if the Equality Act passed. It would be a very hard sell for our board to decide that sexual standards don't matter anymore but it would also be really hard for our board to say, we're going out of business. Thankfully, the Equality Act did not pass in the spring of 19, but I was disappointed to see that presidential candidate Joe Biden has gone on record saying that passing the Equality Act would be one of the primary goals of his administration. So three signs of the times, a fired teacher, Biological males competing with females, the Equality Act. Why would I drop all of this on you this morning? Well, first, it's a worldview issue, isn't it? It's a view on truth and how to live, and it's a worldview issue we are all going to have to face. We can't avoid dealing with this. So we need to consider, don't we, as Christians, what we believe, where we stand what we will say. Second, the reason I raise it this morning is the tension I think we will face from an issue like this is quite similar to the tension faced by the church in Thyatira that we are considering this morning. Uh, The church in Thyatira was a healthy church in so many ways, as we'll see, but they lived in a culture that worshipped very different gods and therefore promoted a very different lifestyle than the one demanded by Jesus Christ. And in Thyatira especially, there was an economic cost for not joining in on that lifestyle promoted by the culture. Another thing for us to learn from is what Jesus will say is Thyatira's biggest problem. Because you see, when there's a cultural cost for being faithful to Jesus, there will also be the challenge of what I want to call syncretistic teaching. Do you know that word, syncretism? Syncretism is when you combine different religions together, often in order to avoid the cost of being devoted to one God alone. So in this case, syncretism says you can worship Jesus And participate in the worship of other gods. You can live like you follow Jesus and still, or you can live like you follow other gods and still say you follow Jesus. You can give a head nod to Jesus, but avoid the cost of full devotion to Jesus. So we can understand why, in a situation where there's a cost to follow Jesus, this teaching would arise. It's a way to try to have your cake and eat it too. Follow Jesus, but avoid the cost of devotion to him. As we're going to see this morning, Jesus definitely has some thoughts on that kind of teaching. So here we are on the fourth and longest of Jesus' addresses through the Apostle John to the seven churches throughout Asia Minor. And I want to remember with you that sevenfold pattern we've seen every week in these messages Number one, each address starts with a declaration of who Jesus is. This is all important. The ultimate issue is always, do we see Jesus for who he is? If we do, we'll want to follow him faithfully. Number two, all churches hear about the knowledge of Jesus. He knows us. He knows our situation. Number three, most churches get encouragement from Jesus. Jesus loves to praise his people for what they're doing that please him. Number four, most churches get a rebuke from Jesus. He has complaints with his people, and he'll call them to repentance. Five, all churches receive a calling from Jesus where he tells us, this is what I want you to do to follow me. Six, most churches get a consequence from Jesus. This always connects with the rebuke. If you won't repent, there's going to be a discipline and seven, all churches receive a promise from Jesus for those who conquer. There's always great reward for following Christ. He's infinitely worth it. So we want to listen to what, to, to what Jesus said to Thyatira. Their situation is not identical to ours, and there's many ways in which our situation is different. But there are enough similarities we can learn quite a bit for Jesus message to them. And so as we understand what he's saying to, do, to them, we want to ponder what he's saying to us as well. First, a little background to Thyatira. The city was known for its economy. Historians say there were more trade guilds in Thyatira than any of these other cities in Asia Minor. We also need to note that that economy, those trade guilds, were nearly always connected to idol worship. The economy was connected to idolatry. So let me show you what Greg Beal, commentator Greg Beal says about the city. Beal says, Thyatira was an economic center with a particularly large number of trade societies or guilds, each of which required members to participate in idolatrous practices to retain membership. Practically, it would be difficult to engage in commerce in the city without being part of such an organization. And so the pressure on Christians living in the city to engage in such practices would have been substantial. So we can feel the tension a little, can't we? To continue to own your business or to participate in the business guild, you would be pressured to join in the worship of a god other than Christ, and if you declined because of you reserved your worship for Jesus alone, there could very well be a stiff price to pay. So Jesus speaks to them. So here, verse 18, we see his declaration. The declaration of who he is. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God. Let's just pause there for a moment. We, as God's people, continually need to see the grandeur of who Jesus is. And let's just ponder this phrase, the Son of God. Here in this uh, section of Revelation, we remember that Revelation is full of Old Testament allusions and pictures. And this text echoes Psalm 2, that great psalm of the Old Testament, describing God's divine promised king who will rule over all forever and ever for God's glory and the good of his people and so it's just a reminder of who Jesus is Jesus is the son of God and the ultimate king who will reign forever Caesar's not the son of God as he claimed all these counterfeit gods are nothing and compared to the reality of who Christ is we want to see and know and belong to him Second, we remember, don't we? The great Lord of all is also our Savior. He's our Savior. Let's remember this vision, a section from this vision in Revelation 1. Revelation 1, 17 to 18. Jesus says there, I love these words, fear not, fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, behold, I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death. No matter our situation, we remember that God's people, we don't need to be afraid. Jesus is the first and the last. That means he's sovereign Lord. He's truly and fully God in himself, and he's in control of everything for his glory. We can trust him. We also remember that this great king is the one who's loved us and died for us. Let's just remember that again. Do you remember? Jesus Left his throne of glory and took on human flesh. He became a man. He suffered in that he lived the perfect life you and I could not live. And he died on the cross as a substitute for our sins. And he rose from the dead in victory. And his promise is that for anyone who repents of their sin and puts their faith in him, he will give freely. The gift of his perfect righteousness. He will forgive us of all our sins and accept us just as we are. Adopted as children of God and heirs of his kingdom. He holds the keys of death. And when we meet that first death, we know even then we are safe. He holds the key and will bring us to himself. He rose, he reigns, and so as we see him, our Lord, who's also our Savior, we want to live faithfully for him, knowing he will return, he will renew the world, it will reign with him forever. This is our great hope as Christians. So we see who Jesus is as the Son of God, but we also see in this declaration of who he is, we see what he wants. He reminds this church of his eyes. He has eyes of fire. What does that mean? That means he sees all as the judge of the world who will judge everyone and everything according to his word. He sees. The one who is consuming fire, he sees. He knows our hearts. He knows what we love and how we live, what we want. And and we we will answer to him according to his word. We need to take his justice and his knowledge into account. We also see something about his feet. Did you notice? His feet are like burnished bronze. This would echo to the city of Thyatira. Bronze was a major business there, and they would know what it takes to refine metal and to make it glow with purity, all impurities removed. And this this is to show us Jesus' holiness and his character, his perfection. And we also see what he wants in his church. We are to be devoted to him and share the holiness that he has, to love what he loves, to want what he wants, and to be rid of impurities, our sin that deny and defy him. So that's what this declaration is about. Our Lord is our Savior, and our Savior King wants us to be a pure church for his glory. Verse 19, we hear again, like every church hears, Jesus says, I know, I know. He always knows. Uh, I like to pause here because it reminds us he knows our situation. Uh, He's not far away. He's not taken by surprise. He's near. He understands. He knows what we need to hear. He knows how to meet our needs. He also knows our hearts, which is always just this call to remember him, to present ourselves to him, to listen to him, to say, Jesus, what would you say to me How are you drawing me near? How are you moving in my life? So we see who Jesus is, the son of God, and we remember that he knows. Number three, we get to encouragement. Encouragement. We see this in verse 19, and it's quite the encouragement. Five encouragement, five things Jesus loves about this church. He knows their works, their lives reflect, their beliefs, they have action to how they live for Christ. He knows their love. This is probably brotherly love and care for one another. They love one another. He knows their faith. They have conviction about what they believe. Uh, They're sharing the gospel with their neighbors. He knows their service. They're willing to give of themselves to meet the needs of others. He knows their patient endurance. They keep going. They're not quitting. They're not flaking out. They're keeping at it. And even their latter works exceed the first. They're not fading out. They're moving forward. They're still growing. This church loves God. They love one another. They're serving one another, sharing the gospel. And Jesus Jesus encourages them for it. So we want to be like this, don't we? This is the kind of church we want to be. And I'm thankful for you and the so many ways that you are like this, that you endure, that you love, that you serve. Thank you for that. Jesus sees it, and he would encourage you for it this morning. But I think it's worth noting here, in context of what I raised already this morning, we want to genuinely love people experiencing gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is when people feel um, unhappy, uncomfortable with their biological sex, And we know that people in this situation often are suffering from so much pain and a horrible sense of ostracism. And if you're listening today and you struggle with that, I, I wanna say we wanna listen to you. We wanna welcome you. We wanna show you every empathy. And our ultimate hope for you is not some sort of cultural stereotype of masculinity or femininity Our hope for you is the same hope we have for each one of us, no matter what we're experiencing. It's Jesus, our Savior King, who made us, who accepts us as we are by grace through faith, and who builds us up in the knowledge of him and what he has. We want to be a loving church in times like these. Just because we're concerned, perhaps, of an agenda that is out there does not mean we can't be deeply loving, sympathetic, and self-giving for individuals who are struggling uh, with any kind of need or hurt. So Jesus encourages this church for their lives of faithfulness and love. We want to be that way. But now, as we walk through the passage, we get into this long rebuke that goes straight into a consequence jesus is going to speak very seriously to this church verse 20 he says i have this against you that you tolerate let's just pause there for a moment according to jesus the main problem with this church is a certain kind of what tolerance it's a value in our culture right um Seemingly to tolerate nearly anything. The only thing we can't tolerate is when someone says something is wrong But I want to be careful here. Careful here. Let's back up Isn't it true that in a way Christians should be the most tolerant people on the planet? I Guess I'll start by asking you how tolerant Jesus has been with you How much does he continue to welcome you love you serve you, bless you, help you, even when you fall, even when you turn away, even when you're immature, even when you don't always get it right. And doesn't Jesus call for us uh, or call from us a certain kind of tolerance? The New Testament says, bear with one another. What does that mean? That means that in the local church, there's going to be people who annoy us, who disagree with us, who hurt us. And the calling there is to forgive It's to love. It's a glory, the Bible says, to not be offended. We are to be deeply tolerant. And and even with the world around us that disagrees with us, what's the call for how we treat our neighbor? Love your neighbor. What's the call for how we treat our enemies? Love your enemy. Christians in the gospel have All sorts of resources for ways to love and serve people who disagree with us. And we never want to forget that. But having said that, everyone's tolerance stops somewhere on something. Wouldn't you agree? There are some things for each of us that go too far and cannot be accepted. Of course, for many issues, opinions will differ on what that should be. And I see our culture seeming less and less tolerant of letting Christians live as Christians. But Jesus here wants to talk about things Christians themselves should never tolerate. One, Christians must not tolerate compromise with the cultural idolatry in our own hearts and minds. There should be no compromise for that. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2. These are such important words. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not Be what? Conformed to this world. So here the the world means values that are against God, desires that are against God and His Word, lifestyle that's against God and His Word. And the command here is do not be conformed to that. Don't be shaped by that. Don't compromise with that. Instead, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We want minds and hearts that please the Lord because we're devoted to him and his word. We want to please him in how we think, what we love, how we live. We would not want to tolerate being conformed a, being conformed to the world in our lives, right? The second things Christians should not tolerate This is what Jesus is speaking to explicitly here. Christians should never tolerate syncretistic teaching in their church that claims to be Christian but denies following Jesus according to his word. So we remember, when there's a cultural cost that comes from following Jesus, there will always be this challenge of syncretistic teaching. There will be those who claim to be Christian, who claim to speak for Christ, who promote compromise with the culture in order to avoid paying the cost of faithfulness to Jesus. And this tolerance was exactly Jesus' problem with the church of Thyatira. They were tolerating adulterous teaching. We see from context, they had probably confronted it. They had gone to this teacher and said, that's not right. It's not the way to do this. It's not what we believe. But the teacher somehow and the followers of that teaching remained and the church allowed them to do so. They were tolerating syncretistic teaching that claimed to be Christian, but actually denied Christ and what it meant to follow him. So why was this teaching so awful? Why is Jesus so serious about it? Well, you see it in the name. Did you see what Jesus called the teacher? He mentioned the name Jezebel. Now, I'm quite sure that the actual name of this teacher in Thyatira was not Jezebel. We remember that the book of Revelation is chock full of illusions and pictures from the Old Testament. So if you want to read about Jezebel, read the book of 1 Kings. And here's what you'll learn. She was an outsider, not one of God's people, but she kind of infiltrated by marrying Ahab, the king of Israel. And as she infiltrated, she influenced Ahab and all of Israel to follow the worship of the Baal, Baal worship, idolatry. And Baal worship included all sorts of deviant sexual practice. So by naming the teacher in this way, Jesus is showing you the kind of teaching this is. Look at Revelation 2.20. Somehow this teacher is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. couple things to see. Number one, the teacher claims to be a prophetess, which means she claims somehow to speak for Jesus but the teacher is also influencing Christians toward joining in on the cultural idolatry, the practice of worshiping those idols, and the sexual immorality that would often follow. So according to Jesus, this teacher is teaching spiritual adultery. We remember that our worship forms our practice of sexuality. This is because Jesus is the great husband And we as the church are his bride. And so we owe our worship and our devotion to him and him alone. And he is jealous for that. And so we see time and time again the way we would feel about experiencing the horrors of adultery is the way he feels about his people joining in the worship of other gods. So Jesus finds it quite serious and that's the kind of teaching this church is tolerating. It's in their midst, and they're saying, hey, no big deal, or they're not, they're not acting on it. And it's ruining the identity of who they are. So, okay, no one here is probably tempted to worship Baal, as far as I know. Um, and thank God, I don't know of any situation in our church where we have this identical problem. I don't know of anyone uh, claiming to be Christian and denying Christ and what they teach. But we can learn from this moment, can't we? We have to ask, what are the idols of our day? And how are we tempted to compromise in the worship of those idols? And as you ask that question, you realize this could be in a nearly endless discussion. Is the church tempted to idolize money? Are we tempted to idolize politics? Are we tempted to idolize sexuality? Sure. And there's a cultural idol specifically to address this morning, and I guess I would call it the idol of self-determination. A fundamental idol of today is self-determination. It's where I define what is true for me to the point that I decide to be or do whatever I desire. In whatever way I desire it and one way this idolatry shows itself I think is that biblically and I think scientifically there are two genders Genesis 1 tells us God made us male and female in his image but ask Google today how many genders there are and the options are seemingly endless. I've seen lists of 50, 60, and that ideology more and more, I think, is being forced on the society at large. And so one question we need to ask ourselves is, how can we make sure that we Christians who follow follow Jesus as Lord don't join in the worship of this idol of self, and self-determination. Isn't it true that fundamental to being a Christian is to admit we don't define our own reality? And it was was Adam and Eve who said, we'll choose what's right and wrong as they took from the tree. We'll define it. No, a Christian knows that um, to belong to God is to submit to Him and His definition on reality So, for instance, gender is not something we invent to name and create ourselves. Gender is something we receive as a gift as we are named by someone else and created in his image. It's important for us to think about, as we hopefully can stand in truth and with love, Against this kind of cultural identity of self-determination Because I think there are some precious things that are at stake in this kind of God war For our minds and our hearts and we need to be ready To love our neighbor for the glory of God as we can hopefully speak and live the truth in love I can't unpack all of these issues, but I just want to say I think Freedom of speech matters for love for our neighbor. And the ability to freely debate truth as we look to discover it. I think freedom of religion deeply matters for the love of our neighbor. That should be passionate for Christians because we know salvation does not come by coercion. It comes by faith where someone trusts in Christ personally. I think... People experiencing gender dysphoria matter. And they should be able to hear the truth in love. I think marriage between a man and a woman matters. God has designed this for our good. And friends, do you remember what what the New Testament says is maybe the ultimate picture of the gospel in our everyday lives? Look at Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The way we understand gender and God's design is intimately connected to the gospel itself. Parents and parental rights matter. Do you remember what Jesus said? In Matthew 15, 4, God commanded, honor your father and your mother. In order to honor the people, your father and your mother, don't you need to honor the institution that there is such thing as a father and a mother and that male and female parents exist and the reality of a couple working in concert is God's design and good for society? The sanctity of women matters. There should be a protection for those who are female. There should be the ability for those with female bodies to be separate separate from those with male bodies. Finally, in this debate, the value of children matters deeply. In 2018, a group of professionals and others contributed to a symposium entitled, Born in Your Own Body, and they proclaimed transgendering children is not progressive but politically reactionary medically dangerous and abusive to children those are some of the reasons this conversation matters idols always diminish and deny and harm those who follow them and jesus alone is the one who gave himself up for his broken people and builds them up by his grace in himself. At any rate, the big picture lesson to learn from what Jesus is saying to this church is this. On every issue, Christians want to be devoted to Christ according to his word for the love of their neighbor and the glory of God. And so we don't want to tolerate any deviation from that in our minds and our hearts or any teaching that claims to be Christian and denies that in our church. Well, As far as the situation with Thyatira goes, Jesus is very serious with this church and moves straight to the consequence. And again, I want you to know, I don't think that in our case we are identical with this church. Uh, I hope, by God's grace, we are in a better position. But still, we can learn from them. Look at verse 22 to 23. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Well, what is Jesus saying? I think he's saying he's going to confront spiritual adultery With a just consequence The bed is one is where one commits adultery and so this spiritual adultery will lead to a just consequence a sick bed the idolatry will bring judgment and the consequence will be serious for both those who teach this adulterous syncretistic teaching and those who follow the teaching and what they believe and how they live and i'm not sure exactly how the details of jesus judgment worked with this church. He says things like a great tribulation is coming. That's hard times in their in the context of their lives. And he actually says in 23 i will strike her children dead. It's one of those shocking phrases we see every once in a while in the new testament. Do you remember 1 Corinthians? When Paul talks about how Christians are misusing the Lord's Supper and not loving one another, all of a sudden he drops this thing, and this is why some of you have died. we are sitting here thinking, what? This kind of discipline is not the kind the church does to one another. Oh, no, this is the kind of discipline Jesus alone in his sovereignty somehow brings. But look at the, the result of it. All the churches will know. That I am he who searches mind and heart, and I give you according to your works. That's what we need to realize here with the consequence, is that Jesus is serious about his people being devoted to him, and he will act strongly when a church tolerates adulterous teaching and that kind of behavior. This is an echo here. Jesus seems to be quoting from Jeremiah 17. Listen to Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That gives us pause, doesn't it? We can't trust everything we're inclined to. Verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So now we get to the calling, verse 24 and 25. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. So the first burden he gives them is don't tolerate this teaching anymore. In their context, it would be probably church discipline. Get the teacher out who's claiming this kind of teaching. And do you see how serious it is? Jesus called it the deep things of of what? Of who? Satan? We're reminded we're in a spiritual battle, and Satan wants to deceive in order to destroy. And so often he does this through false teaching. He loves to call things Christian that aren't. And so we want to repent by not tolerating this kind of teaching in our own lives or hearts or in our church. But for those who don't hold to it, Jesus says, I don't lay any other burden on you. He loves this church. Verse 25, he says, only hold fast what you have until I come. What would that mean for us? Hold fast what you have until I come. When the last, le- the last message to the church, we saw in Revelation 2.13 what Jesus said to them. And because these letters are so similar, I think it's the right understanding for this letter as well revelation two thirteen. jesus says to the church yet you hold fast my name you hold fast my name what does that mean it means we worship jesus according to his word no matter the cost We know who he is according to his word. We know what he's done according to his word. And we know what it means to live for him according to his word. And we're going to hold to that and never let it go. That's Jesus calling to us. And to those who do that, we receive the promise. Verses 26 to 29. The one who conquers and keeps my works to the end, to him I will give authority. Uh, To conquer in Revelation just means to be faithful to Jesus according to his word until you're dead. Not perfectly, but genuinely, with endurance. And Jesus calls it keeping my works. That means listening to what he's said and living accordingly. And to those who do that, did you hear what he'll give? He'll give authority over the nations. I mentioned earlier that this section is an echo of Psalm 2. If you read Psalm 2, you' see Jesus, this promised king, ruling the nations with a rod of iron. And that's why it's so amazing to see verse 27. If you conquer by God's grace through faith in Christ, what is Jesus going to give you, verse 27. He will rule. She will rule. Jesus people will actually participate in the reign of his coming kingdom. You're not just left in the corner on the sidelines. You're brought fully in. You're active, you're a participant, you're a member of the kingdom with Christ. We got to look ahead to Revelation 11:15. Look ahead to this promise and know our place in it. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That day is coming. No more tears, no more pain, no more injustice, no more internal brokenness, no more tribulation, no more persecution, where we see the face of Jesus and we reign in his renewed kingdom with him forever. What a day, and it's offered to all of us, any of us, who will trust him. But it gets even better than that. Not only will we participate in his kingdom, Jesus says, I will give him the morning star. I will give him the morning star. What is that? I heard of a, a website where you could actually sign up and kind of name a star after yourself or give it to somebody as a gift and they get a little certificate and hang it on the wall and it's like, I have a star. I'm hoping this is a little bit better than that. And of course it is. It's infinitely better. Look at Revelation 22:16. Listen to what Jesus says. Revelation 22, 16. I am the root and descendant of David. The what? The bright morning star. Friends, Jesus is the promised king who gives us himself. He gives us himself. Counterfeit kings don't do this. They rule for their own benefit. Idols promise you a self made self, but they always destroy. Listen, Jesus is the only holy and perfect King who gave his life for our salvation, who forgives us of all our sins, who heals our hearts in his love, who loves us deeply and personally. And he doesn't just give us gifts. He gives us himself. And if you're listening to me this morning, I want you to know this is offered to you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your story is like, no matter how much you think of yourself as a mess, no matter how much you think of yourself as put together, but then you're realizing that's a lie. Jesus offers himself to all who will turn from their pride, from their self-definition, from their sin, and trust in him. Jesus offers you a new name, a new identity, the significance of belonging to him, of being a child of God, of being called righteous, of being forgiven, and he will give you his very self, that you could look upon his face, have a relationship, know his personal love for you, and respond with love to and for him, and do that forever. And friends, that's a picture of satisfaction. It's the picture of bliss. And the more you see who Jesus is, what he's done for you, the gift of his kingdom, the gift of himself, you'll be motivated to be devoted to him, to be faithful to his truth, no matter the cost, for the love of your neighbor and for the glory of God, because you know he's worth it. Let's be a church like that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess... uh, The murk and difficulty and pain of this life, we confess how hard it is to get things right. We confess how hard it is to argue for the truth and still love our neighbor, to love our neighbor and still speak for the truth. We confess how much we need you. We need you. And so we pray, Jesus, especially for our community, the community listening in right now, that we would have eyes to see you for who you are. AND WE WOULD BE AMAZED BY YOU, WE WOULD BE SUBMITTED TO YOU, AND THAT YOU WOULD FORM US TO WHERE MORE AND MORE INDIVIDUALLY AND COMMUNALLY WE WOULD WANT TO BE DEVOTED TO YOU AND WHAT YOU'VE DONE ACCORDING TO YOUR WORD, AND THAT WOULD SHOW ITSELF IN THE RIGHT FRUIT OF LOVE, OF SERVICE, OF WELCOME, AND ALSO OF CONVICTION TO SPEAK YOUR TRUTH IN LOVE FOR OUR NEIGHBOR AND FOR YOUR GLORY. LORD, HELP US DO THIS. In all these ways that are difficult, help us do it faithfully. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.